Hello, you're listening to Under the Skin, in which I, Russell Brand, get under the skin of various political issues. In a minute, we're going to be talking to Dr. Brad Evans, who did the very first episode, and we're going to understand what is going on in the world with this election, snap elections, but all manner of peculiarity, the lurch to the right, the terror. We're going to try and understand these issues from an academic perspective in a way that you can understand. Before that, I should mention a word from our sponsors. I'm our sponsors. Come and see me and my rebirth tour. Uh, many dates are sold out, but there are tickets available for Margate on the 26th, Southampton on the 2nd of May and Oxford on the 10th of May. Those are the dates that I'd love you to come and see. Go to russellbrand.com to see further uh, availability and if you like this show subscribe to it and review it in iTunes iTunes they're going to ignore you don't get involved with those guys I, I think Apple are probably suing them even as we speak Time to get under the skin. Dr. Brad Evans is a reader in political violence at the School of Politics and International Studies at the University of Bristol. He is the founder and director of the Histories of Violence Project, and his latest books include Liberal Terror and Resilient Life, The Art of Living Dangerously. Liberal Terror, that's one book, and Resilient Life colon the art of living dangerously two separate books but we've had brad on before and i've got to know you somewhat now brad it was nice to meet up with you in harrogate and see you thanks for doing that and thanks for hanging out again on the show no it's a pleasure as always we had a different type of chat when we were with our life partners, didn't we? We sort of a bit more, what were we, domestic, normal? Yeah, what would you call quite, it? quite domesticated. And I think it was, uh, yeah, chatting about Bataille and Betty's and Harrogate. That's well, that's right. Moment. I brought up Bataille. I wanted, like, Bataille is a French philosopher. And was he a contemporary of Sartre? Who sort of, the stuff I was interested in was his writing on eroticism mm-hmm. and death yeah. and the connection between those two things. Yeah, no, and he's a, he's a fascinating character who theorises a lot about excess and about excess of human behaviour. Which excess. Is, yeah. And the excess of death, the excess of love, the excess of, you know. And, and excess in itself is quite a fascinating concept because on the one hand we can think about excess as being something which is quite liberatory, right? But excess also can obviously lead to great addictions and excess. So that's the fine line which Bataille was trying to navigate through. Is our current economic system affected by this idea of excess? Isn't consumerism and capitalism to some degree about having more than you need absolutely yeah it, well that's the way it's it, it gets it, it, it operates seductively right it, it's all about promoting excessive lifestyles mm. but excessive lifestyles not in a way in which Bataille understands in terms of excessiveness around the possibility of living a possibly an exceptional or an artistic life but excess is of course just simply material so it's excess of surplus capital for to buy more stuff effectively Brad, I've got you in here, like, because I think the first podcast we did was really fantastic. You, like, uh, the stuff that I've read of yours has helped me to understand uh, violence and the and uh, the media reporting around terroris- terrorism a lot better than I previously had done. I think you're able to communicate in a way that's succinct, not always succinct. I mean, in the last podcast you did say that's just basic Foucault, which will go down in the annals as a, an acad- an academic quip to refer to anything being basic Foucault. But what I wanted to talk to you about now. 
and what I want Under the Skin this podcast to focus on is like there are certain news narratives that uh, are espoused and what is the truth behind them when like so, say like say in Britain at the moment we've just been told there's a snap election Theresa May comes outside Downing Street extremely dramatically lit something I've not seen before she looked sort of different she had her hair cut she looked like a very it looked like a sort of a, a peculiar ex- political exercise some people have referred to it as a power grab and a coup but what what do you think about what uh, this snap election what do you think this means for British politics what does it mean at a time where it feels like globally we're lurching to the right we've you know sort of like there's the, the, the fear that people have around Trump and what's happening in the French election which by the time you listen to this may already have been resolved Marine Le Pen may be president of France by this time what like is is there a global trend is there something that we can identify now and what is our role within it and how should we understand it You've only got 10 seconds to answer that, Brad. Yeah, well, I think, first of all, let's deal with the British election. And um, I think all we need to know about the British election, or the most instructive point, is Theresa May insisting that she is not going to participate in any form of public debate. Now, for all the flaws of the representative parliamentary system. At least it does allow for a particular sense of a limited debate. Now, that closure of the debate in itself is very instructive because what it reveals is this has got nothing to do with any substantive political issues. It is precisely a power takeover. It's as simple as that. There's not going to be any NHS buses. This is just... The narrative is already about platitudes about don't ruin an already ruinous situation. And in that sense, I think what this this represents, similar to what's happening in Turkey and elsewhere in France, is, is very clearly a shift to the right. And the only winners seem to, seem to be coming out of this are the financial elites or the right-wing bigots who kind of imagine the UK now as some kind of almost like a fortified island complex, which is kind of, you know, perfectly attuned to what capitalism needs. How does her refusal to engage in debate indicate such a complex idea? Mm-hmm. Well, I think the, in in terms of you know the um, her, her willingness, I, I've never been the you know the, the strongest supporter of representative democracy, and actually I think the Western conception of democracy in itself is fundamentally flawed. But the least we can have within this system is a sense of, you know, let's debate the issues and give the public something of an informed choice. And once we take that out of the arena, there is pretty much nothing left but vacuous Plethoras. Thank you for carrying on while I sort of went across the other side of the room to, room to shut and said rude by mistakes. It was rather rude of me. There was a sort of a light shining in my eyes, Brad, that was sending me. A, a bit mad. What you're saying is, is that parliamentary democracy, parla, means talk, doesn't it? It's like a talking, communicative democracy. Theresa May said, there will be, I won't be taking part in any televised debates. And you see that as a way of limiting the way that the conversation around this election is uh, broadcast, conveyed and understood? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, is? well, I think, you know, the democracy as we understand it in itself as it's presented to us in the public, I would argue is a fundamentally flawed concept. And it, it's it's already operating within very small parameters of debate. Now, 
removing that debate altogether kind of invalidates the entire theorization around why this system might possibly work. And and I and I think you know we always know that you know the history of democracy is actually more defined by what it excludes, the people whose voices are not included. Now, by what do you mean? Just on a basic level of like suffrage, like initially it was just uh, men with like you know sort of men with a certain amount of wealth and power. Slaves don't vote even in in the, at the dawn of democracy. Women didn't get the vote for ages. You say like criminals can't vote. <laughs> so you think well, they like the, the who's excluded from a democracy is more important than who's included. That or yeah, well, it, I think it's, it's more revealing. And, and if you revealing. look, like, you're right. You know, if you look like just even the history of the term democracy in the Greek sense, it comes from the, the merger between demos and. Uh, Kratos, right? And this merger together... What do you mean, by the way, Demos and Kratos? So, so Demos was originally interpreted as the people and Kratos is power, so it's people power. Mm. However, that's actually a misreading of even the origins of the term because the Demos in the old Greek understanding referred to a particular area of Attica in, in Athens. And you had to be a citizen of, of this, this region in order to qualify for the democratic system, which basically excluded all women, all slaves, all foreigners. So from the outset, the concept of democracy has always been fundamentally flawed. It's a bit out of order, isn't it, to say we've got this democracy, power to the people. No slaves, no women, no yeah, foreigners. Absolutely. But are you saying then, Brad, and I guess like because you know, you're not just giving us a history lesson, although we always learn a great deal every time you open your mouth and I shut mine, are you saying that there are similar but perhaps less obvious means of exclusion in contemporary democracy, i.e. those that there's exclusion at the level of who's allowed to participate in democracy and there is exclusion too uh, around which ideas are included, which ideas are indeed up for debate. What we're actually discussing is censored. Yeah, absolutely. And also democracy is much more... You know, when we talk about democracy in, in any Western sense, what we're really talking about is procedures. right? So it's a procedural approach. And it's a procedural approach which often marginalises voices. Now, the way it can marginalise voices, it can do it in many different ways. It can give people the right to vote, but then it can actually deny them any sense that they have any form of empowerment over the things which fundamentally affect their lives. And I think in that sense, the, the, the ability within Western liberal democracies to marginalise voices can be subtle, but it can be very pernicious as well. Well, what do you mean subtle and pernicious? Whose voices are marginalised? How is that happening now? Mm -hmm. Well, in terms of... You look at the, 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 the contemporary UK election, I'm yet to see one political party who is basically standing on, well, actually, let's rethink Brexit. Right. So in that sense, there is a very small marginalised debate already taking place, which the media are pushing, which all these different sides are, you know, are kind of just colonising a particular narrative around what we are allowed to discuss. Now, nobody, for instance, is really discussing, you know, how can we actually really seriously think about the power of global capitalism? Even Jeremy Corbyn, who seems you know, quite a principled guy, is retreating back into old dogmatic state theories around what he's going to do and it actually really marginalises a lot of serious radical voices in Do you discussion. think that the, the voice that needs to be included in this election and perhaps uh, political discourse more generally are how do we um, temper, moderate, address global capitalism. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that's the dominant and determining force of our time, is the power of global capitalism, yes, particularly absolutely. in the Western and, and in terms of we live in a system 
which is which extends out of the logics of the 1960s and we've talked about this previously how you know liberalism and marxism emerged as sort of two sides of the same coin and both those systems prioritize the economic model for governance and in that sense everything gets reduced to a question of economics so that's a very that's a big point you're making there Brad you sent me an article and I tweeted it and I'll tweet it again um, by like, uh, we'll tweet it when this comes out, and uh, like by a, an American, he called himself Indian activist called Russell Mead, who says that you, like he seems, he says there seems to be the idea that we should be allying ourselves with Marxists and Marxism. But he says our people think that Marxism and capitalism are just different sides of the same coin. Now, as soon as I sort of read that sentence, I thought, hold on a minute, this is some mind-blowing gear, this. And Adam Curtis actually said to me that um, Marxism, he said the problem with Marxism is that it placed economics forever at the heart of political theory and political ideology that economics is what governs. And that means, and I've mentioned this many times since then, it means that it's to the exclusion of other kinds of ideas. Now, when you're talking about the kind of radical arguments that are excluded by this sort of like, you know, you, so you, one example you mentioned is no one's going to stand on a let's reverse Brexit ticket because there's just been a referendum and mm-hmm. over half of the population or the voting population said, we want to uh, leave Europe. And then, of course, subsequently people go, oh, yeah, but you've not understood what we meant and you were lied to and all of that. Now, and what, what I saw as the significance of Brexit and the election of Trump is the end of a kind of neoliberalism that's been the dominant political ideology for like sort of two or three decades or whatever. It seemed like a moment, because I can see Brad's thinking I'm wrong, I'm clearly wrong about that, because he did an expression that told me I was, and he'll tell us why in a minute. But, <laughs> but like... Um, but what... what when, I, when we talk about the inclusion of more radical ideas, like... What would happen if someone was standing or a party was standing on the basis of saying that parliamentary democracy needs to be radically altered, mm-hmm. that we could have much more democracy if we decentralised power mm-hmm. and there is no chance of people having more influence or more power over their lives as long as global capitalism has the unimpeachable and dominant role that it currently does in international politics. Mm-hmm. Like that, now, say for like, like, why is that not included in the argument and could it be? Well, it, it, it absolutely is necessary to be included, and it's not. So I think that's the situation we're in. Um, now, the point around, first of all, you know, parliamentary democracy, I, I think it still clambers to this, to this illusion that we can somehow reclaim national sovereignty. Now, sovereignty in itself, we know, is very beholden to the forces of global capitalism. The, the, the ability to get things done is financial, and that's the, 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 the reality. So for, for all the Conservatives' claims about, you know, let's reclaim national sovereignty, there's no attempt whatsoever to rein in the forces of global capitalism. So, like, if, if a party like the Conservatives were uh, being honest about a desire to have Britain more powerful, they wouldn't be leaving the EU. They'd say, we're going to have these kind of relationships mm-hmm. with these corporations. We're going to control them in this way. We're going to make sure they pay tax in this way if they want to trade in our country they will have to trade in this way so that's that's the that's the interface of power that's where the argument needs to take place and no one has the appetite to have that argument no but but i think it's also it's very much embedded in the way we've come to understand politics in the 20th century and it even goes back further because you know if you look at prior to of course to the, the advent of secularism you have the three great monotheistic <clears throat> religions right so islam christianity <clears throat> judaism secularism separation of church and state yeah, and, and, we and, live in a secular and, and, and those three great monotheistic religions get replaced by liberalism, communism, fascism. Now, the big shift that they do is basically is the triumph of technical ways of thinking. Ultimately, everything is reduced to a question of economics. Fascism was an economic project. 
Communism was an economic project. Liberalism is an economic project. And through that, you have the emergence then of a certain sense of politics is all about progress, progress measured in economic terms. It reduces politics to questions of a very narrow conception of progressive. And in that sense, you know, what is left out? Well, it's precisely the spiritual. It's precisely that article you refer to. It's precisely people who are saying, well, actually, is there not more to human life than simply being some economic variable which needs to be manipulated? Now, all of us on a human level know that there is more to life than that. But on a political level, how does that conversation ever get elevated or presented how would it because even when you a man in a may I say lovely suit looking like a sort of a d- part doctor of political theory part reservoir dog even when you say it let alone me hippie man with a sort of salt and pepper beard nowadays like you know when you when you say the sp- the incorporation of the spiritual into politics it sounds like you've just said something a bit mental and a bit airy fairy and like Sam Harris is going to come in here and elbow you off your chair but actually it's not that mental because when people say save the NHS, that's a spiritual idea. Saying that we should collectively take care of the vulnerable, that is a spiritual idea. It's an idea that's found in Christianity. It's an idea that's found in Islam. There are no, as, as far as we know, there are no political philosophies that precede those religious ideologies. So even humanism and secularism are resourced from those kind of religious and spiritual ideas. So the NHS and having an NHS is a spiritual idea. In fact, I don't know, even the idea of a sovereign state, of having like, you know, sort of God save our gracious queen like that, that you know, making the queen an emblem of a nation that is a kind of totemic and religious idea mm-hmm. so all of these ideas are already religious they're just a type of religious idea that go place precedence and power in the hands of certain economic agencies yeah and you know you're absolutely right that we haven't, first of all, lost the theological. You know, the um, the German theorist Karl Schmitt argued all modern concepts are secularised theological concepts. Sovereignty was an extension of Christianity, right? And this, you find this in the work of Thomas Hobbes' very famous book, The Leviathan. Now, other authors have also written about the way in which the economy itself operates like a theology. Right. It demands allegiance, unquestionable allegiance. Like a theology means a religious idea or a religious a religious doctrine. dogma, a religious, dogma. you know, and, and it, it, it's all there in, you know, the, the, the foundation text of free market economics is Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations. Adam Smith refers to the operation of the economy through what he calls the invisible hand. It's a profoundly theological concept, as if some divine force suddenly intervenes. Now, what we found over the last 20 years is precisely the moralization of neoliberal economies. Neoliberalism will save you. And this not only happens in terms of day-to-day behaviour about, you know, neoliberalism is the best for you, it will help reduce unemployment in the long run, which we know is a complete fallacy, but also the ways in which the organisations like the IMF and the World Bank transform their remit in the 1990s to become, you know, agents for transformation of conflict resolution and so forth. In other words, they moralise neoliberal economics. So you can't in- keep economics out of morality. There, 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 is, there is no distinction. So even uh, institutions that are meant to be primarily or ultimately or entirely economic start intervening in moral ideas. In fact, mm-hmm. these, these systems of taxonomy or categorization are uh, erroneous. There is no distinction between economics and morality. Economics is going to affect people, it's going to affect power, so it is a moral idea. So just to drag it back to this situation with Theresa May at the moment. So Theresa May bowls out outside down the street. She's real dramatically lit. She looks like a sort of powerful sort of a vampire's niece coming out over there and then announcing like, you know, there's going to be 
being a listener. The thing about her voice as well makes me sort of edgy. She seems like she needs to drink some honey and lemon and that. Like uh, her voice has got a sort of a rattle in it that doesn't seem like that it's sort of somewhat devoid of warmth and humanity. And like, and then you and you feel, all oh, right, this is the ticking clock. This is the countdown. Now it's sort of widely regarded that Corbyn's going nowhere, right? You know, sort of the the, the party's not united behind him. That and it's he's been sort of the way he's been portrayed and positioned by the media is it seems like it's it's over before it's begun. Now, some people that I've got that was like you know when I was like involved in the sort of mainstream media political discourse, I made like a lot of friends with people that perhaps work for the Guardian or people that are sort of like sort of prominent voices on the left. And some of them people have approached me again and said, Russell, we've got to get involved. You've got to tell people to vote and all that kind of stuff, right? And I'm sort of like bloody hell, I've got a kid now. I'm taking life a bit more seriously, <laughs> right? So like um, but like so what? I suppose my question is 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 there a point in this election? Is there a point in us going, look, bloody hell, we need to get Labour in? Like, would that does that make a, a meaningful difference? Is there something that can be like when you see these this surge of well, what's being called sort of nationalism or an interest in right wing politics, or it's Marine Le Pen or Donald Trump or you know like, or Brexit? Is the natural counterpoint to that support for the left? I think. Like yourself, I've always had a very healthy suspicion of party politics and the history of party politics, which I actually think has been very complicit in sexism and racism, especially the Labour Party as much as any other form of political party. So in that sense, party politics to me is always reductive. However, there does come a moment where you have to say, well, we need to be strategic. Right. Mm. And we need to be strategic in terms of because we've seen what's happened across Europe. We've seen what's happened in the United States of America and the ways in which structures of power are currently in existence demands some kind of strategic intervention. Now, the best thing for the UK would be to, for, to have every single party have a very small number of votes. Then we can actually force these people into a conversation with one another. What Theresa May calls the coalition of chaos actually looks quite something a bit more optimistic to me mm. because it means that you don't have this power takeover. You don't have this this dominance of, you know, one party which will effectively get 25 to 30% of the popular vote mm. dictating what happens to the rest of the country. So 70% of the country are already annoyed with what's going on. Now, that's not democratic by any conceivable measure. No, it isn't, is it? In fact, a coalition of chaos does sound quite nice because, like, chaos at least isn't evil because, like, chaos is just, woohoo! It's just, it's just crazily sprawled out all over the place not knowing what it's doing. Whereas a kind of a, a definitive alliance with some of the most negative aspects of human emotion... That is not as good as chaos. I mean, like, this is where I suppose, you know, like when we talk about the, defin the definition of these arguments, it, like we, we've discussed it before. It's like the, the rise of Trump is kind of like the rise of rage and anger and suspicion. This is kind of this post, well, I don't know if it's the same in America, but sort of in Europe, you feel like post-colonial politics. Where it's like, I don't want these people here. I don't want these ideas. I don't want to feel like the state's dissolving. But sometimes I sense, Brad, and this is not so something that's got backed up by any kind of political understanding, that if there is, a, if it feels like sovereignty is evaporating, if it's feeling like nations are no longer real, that nations no longer have significant mm, or meaningful power ultimately because of the power of transnational organisations and uh, uh, global uh, 
commercial enterprises, that perhaps what needs to change is the way we look at how we define our communities. Wouldn't a more localised form of democracy already be an improvement? You're talking about a coalition of chaos within the parameters of current British parliamentary politics. Would it, like, are we not at a point where we could start to uh, devolve power significantly? Say, like, well, you know, like, Jesus Christ, have an independent London, have an independent Manchester, have smaller independent communities. So this whole idea of power being centralised in this way starts to diminish. Yeah, well, I think there's two practical moves we can make, I think, in terms of, you know, how can we start to rethink the future of politics? And one of them, I think, has to do with overcoming the failures of the left. Now, what you find is that, particularly, again, given just a small bit of history, during the 1960s, you have the emergence through a number of whole number of you know, events that were taking place in the 1960s from, the, in the late 60s, the, the assassination of Martin Luther King, the, the Tet Offensive in Vietnam, the, the massacre that took place in Mexico City, then the Paris student uprising, which was the first uprising to actually happen in a time of prosperity. You have the emergence of a new leftist discourse, what some people call postmodernism, where you have the, the so-called proliferation of the crisis of identity, the crisis of democracy, the crisis of the state, which was seen at the time as being remarkably emancipatory. Now, through this, you have then the emergence of identity politics. So people start to say, well, actually, I'm no longer going to be just defined by national affiliation. I want to be whatever I want to be, which was wonderfully empowering on the one hand. But what we have found with the left ever since is these different identity-based collectives, whether it's based on race, uh, gender or class, can often become too authenticating. They actually will retreat back into their own position of authenticity, such that anybody who doesn't seem to fit into the purity of the vision is immediately condemned. So now, the one thing the right does fabulously well is it says none of these identities matter, right? It doesn't matter if you're black or if you're woman or whatever else. And in other words, they can just basically overcome what they believe are those differences. Now, on the one hand, you could say, well, right, OK, that emergence of a new identity politics was wonderfully emancipatory at the moment that it happened. But why is it you stick two leftists in the room today, you're likely to have blood on the walls, right? Because mm. there's that inability to, it can kind of retreat back into almost like a theor theological, uh, theoretical purity in a theoretical position. And, you know, and, and in that sense, it, you know, you, you see this happening time and time again, where people will often then be accused of dividing the left or, you know, following the authentic line because we have the dominance and, you know, the true position on what revolutionary struggle looks like. Now that's the one thing. I think the second point is precisely this hang up with democracy. And what would it happen if we shifted the debate away from just simply capturing the sovereign seat of power? Shift the name from democracy to justice, right? How what would it mean if we shifted the debate from democracy to justice and said, okay, let's hold the conservative government to account, for instance, less about whether they're electable. We know they're going to be elected, right? So but what does that this regime look like from the perspective of justice? Well, first of all, if we analyze them in terms of political justice, well, just look at the regimes they're selling arms to. If you want to deal with them in terms of social justice, you can say, well, okay. Let's link this back to the Hillsborough disaster. Right? What was on trial with the Hillsborough disaster? Okay, Theresa May gave an apology, but out of the Hillsborough disaster, it ended up basically blaming the police force. Whereas actually, Thatcherism should have been put on trial for the Hillsborough disaster. Or let's link this to economic justice. Why are you well, saying that? Because under, under Thatcherism, the police violence behaved with impunity. It was normalised. What happened at Hillsborough was no different to the violence that was engaged against mining communities in South Wales and beyond. So in that sense, you know, what appears so like justice... at that point, Thatcherism had mandated the police force 
to behave violently with in Vocomers working class insurgency to such a point that when they see a crowd at a football match mm-hmm. and the situation is unmanageable because of you know poor management of the stadium and all of that that they feel mandated to regard it as a violent a situation to be violent or dismissive or like you know, leading to all those well you already of, yeah. see the working classes as you know naturally inferior lacking any political agency, lacking any dignity, lacking any civility. So in that sense, you just basically, you can engage in violence, impunity. This is not unique to Thatcherism. This is unique to all regimes which normalise state violence. Now, and again, if you look at the Conservative Party in terms of, you know, how do they stand in terms of environmental justice? On every single conceivable measure of justice beyond the reductive justice is law and order, we could hold every single political project to account in much more meaningful ways than just simply saying, are they democratic? So the two things I would say is, how can we get the left to have a much more, I guess, meaningful conversation around what global politics might look like in the 21st century, which talks precisely to the points that you mentioned around... People on a day-to-day level know that issues such as spirituality matter to them. Mm. They know that politics matters to them. They know if they're, you know, if they're living on benefits and they're being cut, politics matters, right? right? Or if you can't get your child into the local school that you want to get them into, and the chances are they might go to a different school which has poor results, politics matters to you at, the, at that level beyond the grand metaphysical Yeah, and debates. if you can't get a GP, uh, all of those things, it becomes a sort of a very practical thing so on one level it's spiritual because as you say there's a like it could be determined as justice economic inequality is rankles because it is unjust if it oh this is right you know there is not a shortage of wealth there is not a shortage of resources there's just an unwillingness to share wealth and resources and there's something about the way that the economic argument is currently framed whether it's from a, a marxist perspective or a good like sort of a balls out fascistic capitalistic perspective that prevents us ever saying shouldn't we be i mean like yes of course like the reason thing i liked about that article is you're saying yeah marxism is it like a sort of a post-industrial idea about sort of a proletariat revolution and the sharing of resources but there are different ideas about whether or not the we should be industrialising or progressing in inverted commas in the way that we are this narrative of progression that we have to become more mechanised more technical like and and when you talk about that like this idea of justice I suppose what it gives us the opportunity to do is to pull out for a moment and say what kind of society are we looking for do we see that society as likely to be delivered by the Conservative Party or the Labour party or the liberal democrats or the smp or indeed by this uh, parliamentary system that is uh, sort of a deadlocked and immobile because of its uh, international economic relationships mm-hmm. and when you talk about uh, sort of ongoing arms deals so like these are the kind of things that we sort of tend like they come up but in opinion pieces don't they you go we're selling arms to countries that are on our own human rights abuse list and then you just sort of sigh and accept it because power seems so dislocated that, and that's one of the reasons I think that you get Trump and you get Brexit because there was a an opportunity to press the red button to just go fuck you <laughs> like just for a moment I can do something that has some kind of impact but ultimately what is it that you know like if you say to people, would you like to live in a world where you work three days a week, where you work a lot less time, where you feel more connected to your family, where you have more leisure, where you're able to enjoy it? Like, you know, like these kind of arguments are almost excluded. We've all accepted. We're just going to work till we're really, really old and then we're going to die. And, that, and that's it. And we're going to watch the planet slowly deteriorate and we're going to just determine where, which groups of other poor people we hate the most. You know, the, the, these kind of conversations are... Uh, it's very difficult to get them out there. And from my own sort of... 
uh, foray. And like I see this kind of time as a sort of you know like a, a sabbatical in some sense. Of course, like on one in one way, I'm learning. I'm at university. I'm having conversations like this. But what I felt was like that you know like I was in a tumble dryer of futile condemnation like and like that i had to sort of step out of it and learn more because if you want to have these kind of conversations at a public level then you know like immediately like you said about the the, the how identity politics leads to condemnation people like look for opportunities of like well you're not authentic enough or why have you got a house and like oh well bloody hell jesus well that's that then i'm out good luck <laughs> you know like you know so like you know, like so you, it becomes sort of difficult i mean like yeah that what was that word you used authenticating or yeah, it's authenticating and it's kind of but does I, that mean you've got to be so for real you've got, so, you got to be so pure i don't even know who this refers to right because it's, that it's like, a, that's it, another bloody it, spiritual idea you're, you're referring to st francis of Assisi, you're saying like stick on a robe mm-hmm. and have no possessions at all. Yeah, and, and, then and we'll it becomes listen. a complete, you know, the, the the inability to accept that people are actually fallible, that we make mm. mistakes, that you know, nobody's life is kind of pure in that sense. And and I think what you know, part of you know the, the issue for me is and you, you're, you're absolutely right. How can we have a different conversation around what politics might look like? Now, in the UK, again, you know. The moment I hear there was another election being called, it's kind of like, oh, well, here we go again. We're just going to be overwhelmed with you know, endless, meaningless, worthless opinion polls which have no reflection of people's everyday realities. But still, the media will keep, you know, reeling them out until somebody will say on election day, how did the, the opinion polls get it wrong again? And that always seems to happen. Yeah. And But also the lack of imagination in the discussion. I think, you know, the the, pol- the, the political party approach to elections, to me, kind of reminds me of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Right? It's kind of sign up to this religion, go to the conventions every, every year, knock the door and convert people to your political party. Right? What, the Jehovah's Witnesses, that's what they do, just get other people to be well, Jehovah's Witnesses? Yeah, and it's very similar as the Labour Party, no Conservative Party, Liberal Democratic approach to mm. politics, right? It's all we want, basically, is your vote, and we will mobilise an army of people to get your votes. So Give us your vote and fuck off. Yeah, yeah pretty much. <laughs> yeah. In, in the more polite terms, absolutely. Right. And, and, and I, but, but I think, so what we need to then kind of think about is, OK, how can we have a different conversation on what politics means? Well, one way of doing this is get people to think that actually... You can be political in so many ways. People know, especially those on the raw ends of power, know that politics matters. They know that much more than anybody else. But also to get people, and this is the one thing which I try to get my students to think about, is that, you know, you can be deeply political if, you, if you're if you an artist or if you're a filmmaker or if you're a poet or if you join, you know, um, a campaign to demand equal rights for women in the workplace. There are so many different ways in which we can be political which demand a different conception of justice, what it means to be human in the 21st century and this is not something that, that's going to be prescriptive it requires a real serious conversation there, you know, there's, there's this wonderful quote by Woody, Hall, Woody Allen when he says you know humanity is now more than any time in history facing a crossroads one road leads to utter despair and hopelessness the other to total extinction let's hope we have the wisdom to choose correctly every election we confront seems to be this choice we're in a moment where we need to seriously think politics differently. 
And in that, and I don't think those answers are to be found in any parliamentary system. No, because it's a bit like that thing that I've been mentioning lately, uh, like sort of Noam Chomsky talking to Andrew Marr. It's kind of a, a famous clip where Andrew Marr goes, well, hold on, am I censoring myself? And Noam Chomsky says, well, no, I'm just saying that if you uh, weren't the kind of person that had these the beliefs that you have, you wouldn't be sitting in that chair. So, And that's my Noam Chomsky impression, with which I am pleased. And uh, <clears throat> so, like... Um, so it's essentially, like the the choices that we have are being limited at a parliamentary level. The conversation is limited at a parlamentary level. The car, like you know, we've just done like our show on Radio X, and before it, like there's a text of like, don't talk about the election, right? And that comes under the guise, not not even guise, because I don't think anything Machiavellian's happening. It's just like it comes under the. Uh, you know, there's got to be balance. So if you mention one political thing, you've got to mention all of them because it's come out to an election. And this is a media organisation. But you see that how there is a collusion between an economic, uh, like a commercial enterprise, like a radio station, mm-hmm. and the political system. And like one of the producers pointed out, no, 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 it's because of Ofcom, which is a regulatory body. But Ofcom is a government agency. So like in the end, what happens is, is like the, 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 the channel through which information can travel is so sort of closely monitored that anything that's sort of moderately alternative, let alone actual radicalism, starts to sound like the rantings and ravings of a madman. We're trained already to see sort of alternative views. It's like, oh, hold on a minute. It sort of makes you balk and recoil. Or like, you know, sort of if you sort of talk about a respect for nature or respect for one another. It sounds like sort of hippy-dippy shit because it's been, we've been so long being inculcated into a particular perspective. Mm-hmm. And I wonder where this change is going to come from other than cataclysm. Mm-hmm. That is like, like the only thing, the only thing I can imagine, like, so, you know, you, once you have a smack in the mouth, you're prepared to listen to sort of different ideas. And I wonder if that that's what's required at a social level. Mm-hmm. And But it doesn't, like... Because like, still people are unwilling to provide a genuine alternative. If you look at the reaction of the, in, the traditional left or left of centre sort of media and pundits, no one's saying, bloody hell, we've totally lost like, populism. It now belongs to the other guys. You know, like, It's coming from the right. What are we going to do? There's still just more, no, you should see it this way. You should see it that way. Instead of, what is it that we're not giving people? How is it that we can't inspire people? Like, when there's so much need there's so much suffering there's so much loss so much inequality so much injustice you know, i spent like bloody five days in Hartlepool in work filming in a hospital same with the bbc one wing of the hospital is accessible for filming the rest of it's still operating in a very stymied stifled and underfunded way as a hospital and you feel a visceral sense of this is wrong mm-hmm. this is wrong and nobody mm-hmm. is able to do anything about it mm-hmm. like you know now like mm-hmm. i'm sure jeremy corbyn is talking about like you know sort of fun like funding the NHS. I'm sure that's one of the priorities of a sort of a, an authentic, lifelong, committed politician like Jeremy Corbyn. But I suppose what it seems the direction that you and I are heading in is it does parliamentary politics have the power or does this current system have the power to affect, impact, change and exert the will of the people? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can it ever do that? No, I don't believe so. Um, and, you know, there's in terms of your, your point about, you know, who has the capacity to speak truth to power? Now, on the one hand, you look, for instance, a lot of the marginalised communities that you talk about, Hartlepool, or if you look in the South Wales valleys of these communities, it's it's widely recognised that there's a palpable sense amongst white male unemployed people, there's an anger, there's a rage. Mm. But the people, but you never ever see these people on television giving their own opinions. It's always left to the people like Nigel Farage to give the opinion for them. Why is this happening? 
Because there's a clear marginalisation of voices from in, in terms of mainstream political debate. But we can even extend this further to the example that you talked about. When you said, you know, prior to this, you were told, OK, you're on air, don't talk about politics. You know, I know you, you had Noel Gallagher on the show. Mm. He is precisely one of the guys you should be interviewing about politics. Growing up in a working-class Manchester environment, he knows, first of all, the power of the arts, the power of creativity, which can sometimes come from working-class communities in a very spiritual way. He was shamelessly co-opted by the Tony Blair government to, mm. to be kind of this figure of the emergence of the new, new Labour. Those are the types of people which should be precisely, we should be asking them about, you know, how do you feel about this? How do you, his voice is no less important as somebody who owes, you know, a politician on, if we believe, if we believe in the idea of democracy. And this is also why, you know, I want to kind of maybe turn this back on to yourself. And, you know, I'm always fascinated by your journey. And, and, it, and, and it's, to me, it, it's, a, it's a really powerful story, actually, you know. What, why did you get interested in politics? What, what was it that you kind of felt with... Because you could be doing a million and one things on this Sunday afternoon than actually sitting here with me talking about, you know, the state of worldly politics, global injustice. So I'm really fascinated by, you know, and the way in which people try to, as you say, marginalise your voice because you have a house or because you had this background. You know, that to me is a really fascinating story that we need more stories like that to come out, I guess. Well, I think it's difficult. And I think if you look at what subsequently happened, you can see why it doesn't happen more. Like, so like, but for, for me, it was like that. I'd always been interested and I'd, and I'd seen no um, conflict in being a comedian who doesn't in, in one particular from one particular perspective doesn't take life seriously and talking about politics i think that those two things are deeply allied the idea that comedy exists beyond what is uh, accepted what and, and that the sort of formulas of normalcy that because i think that sort of comedy in its essence is saying none of this shit's real you're all gonna fucking die so like you know like, and i always think the perfect example of it is tommy cooper because tommy cooper's act is allegorical for it or analogous that he's like the Tommy Cooper act is oh I'm here doing this magic I'm just trying my hardest to do this magic oh no it keeps going wrong why can't I do my magic I'm really into this magic and like um, all of us trying to hold together our life our wife our kids our jobs our point of view grooming our hair holding ourselves together knowing in our heart of hearts that we are going to die and that there's there has to be something valuable for us to feel why do we feel love why do we want to be good why do we want to connect to one another you can call that humanitarianism or you can call that some kind of divine or religious impulse but until we start favoring that we're going to continue to recreate similar types of societies and similar types of systems now why i like comedy is because it gives you uh, the option of commentating at an angle it gives you the idea of sort of saying like we don't need to be constrained by that argument we can be silly whenever we want and look at the amount of money they spend on humorous speech writers to make you know so, 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 theresa may less so but more david cameron and barack obama or trump or whoever can have an occasional quip, you know, because they know that humour is a powerful tool because it's disruptive, because it's the revelation that our accepted frequency of communication is temporary, the way that we see the world is temporary, that at any given moment we're excluding so much data, we're excluding the fact that we're on this rock spinning in infinite space, that we're, we don't understand time and space or dark matter or dark energy, we're just making a decision to have this chat right now. And at any point, the chaotic energy of the trickster can bring that in, can bring it in through madness, through mayhem. So the reason like that I sort of got, I didn't sort of get involved, I just talked about it, I'd always felt it because 
I was a person that had had to, like you have said, interface with those institutions throughout my life. I've been so, uh, a drug addict, so that meant uh, that means you get in trouble with the police. I didn't have money, so that means that I have to sign on. So I've like had to interface with those institutions all the time, and it always the connection between how it, how it made me feel like this is not fair. <laughs> like so, I suppose I like your justice argument was it like something that I I can't help but see the connection between my individual emotional reactions to living in society and the way that society is governed. And one of the great tricks is that the severance of that relationship, your personal feeling of injustice, has now been reappointed as the problem of some other minority group. The reason that you feel poor and you're dissatisfied is because these lorry drivers are using their mobile phones. The reason you feel poor is because uh, there's too many Muslims now. And and, and what sort of baffled and frazzled me was how how hard it was to go, no, 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 if you want to have more power in your life, don't attack other people with no power. Look at who's got power. Once I was at a protest and I didn't go to enough of them and I was still, even though I wasn't famous, I had this basic personality, which was a problem when I wasn't famous. So there was a bit where they were trying to kettle a group of people that were marching. It was a very reclaim the streets type vibe. The police started to kettle us in one direction. And I got up on top of something and said, hang on a minute, if they want us to go that direction... Let's not go in that direction because obviously the very fact that they want us to go that way is problematic. Let's resist or go in another direction. And people went, shut up, what do you know? Fuck off, <laughs> right? And I sort of remember thinking, mm. the problem was it's like I was like a mad narcissist with a crazy haircut standing up on top of something, showing off and being a twerp. <laughs> So not much has changed. So, but like, but like, the, but the fact was, I was right because we did all go that direction, and then they kettled us into Trafalgar Square, and then they just left us there till we wanted to go to the toilet so much. It was so late and so boring that I can't remember why we were even there in the first place. So the very act of resistance becomes a necessity. If that's what they want you to do, don't do it. And that was sort of my general attitude to the participation in parliamentary democracy. Like, you know, if, unless I see some genuine way that this is going to mean change in my life, I'm not playing. That sort of like, so it came from there. And on another level, I guess it was just, God, why was it? Why was it that it happened then? I still don't fully know. I just went on Jeremy Paxman and just went, (laughs) I just sort of said what I actually feel. And when I watch it back now, it just flows out. It's just Mm -hmm. in there. And and, and what's sort of changed since then is like, you know, what I felt was more attacked by the left than the right. Mm -hmm. And and I felt like, I don't need this. I can take some time off. (laughs) Like, you know, I want to go have a baby. Mm -hmm. But that's what goes back to that that earlier point. And I think part of the criticisms, which is, you know, levelled at you, but also other public personalities who get involved in politics is actually it's remarkably discriminatory because mm. it kind of essentializes yourself and other people have been you know subjected to this as well in a way in which you suddenly become a caricature and as you talk about all those historical struggles that you've had to go through through injustice and you know understanding yourself the raw realities of power and what the things that really animate you that gets writ- written out of the script so I think mm. part of the new conversation around politics is to say well actually nobody's voice should be marginalized in this now bringing it then onto the question of comedy I think that this is fascinating you know because comedy as we know historically has always been one of the most powerful forms of political intervention if we go back to the old Greek tragedies or even if you look at Shakespeare Shakespeare was you know remarkable at critiquing regimes of power and he did it in a very comic way now one of the questions which I think we need to kind of ask ourselves today is that why is it that some of the best political commentators today 
Frankie Ball's done, your engagement in the UK, people like Jon Stewart in America. Why is some of the best political criticisms coming from the comics? Well, to me, it's not coincidental. It's because they can really see how tragic the times are. Mm. And we need to also then take this much more seriously. And this goes again in terms of how we reconceptualise politics. Let's actually take comedy much more seriously as a political form of intervention because it is disruptive. It is something which can force a change. But also, I think what it also does is it actually humanises politics. And, and one thing that we need much more clearly in the 21st century is a much more humanised conception of what the political might mean. Humanised. Humanised. So and that means making room for emotion, like... Well, it's something which I've, I'm engaging in my work in terms of, you know, without becoming too theoretical, it's what I'm calling, what does it mean to have a more poetic understanding of political subjectivity? Oh, bloody hell, Ta mate. Taking it away from questions of reason, rationality, individualisation, onto the terrain of dignity, love and political imagination. To have a much more powerful, but all too human. We all know that this is nothing abstract. We all live our daily lives with love. We all live our daily lives in a way in which we want dignity for ourselves and others. And we all understand that we are on this earth sometimes to be wonderfully imaginative in the most obscure and crazy ways. We are, cre you know, as creatures, we like to create things. And how? What might a better politics around those all too human, but perhaps more poetic forms of understanding look like? Yeah, that's a sort of a fascinating idea. And I suppose it's difficult for anyone, even somebody that's sort of open to those ideas theoretically, to see how that's actually going to influence power because so much of uh, what I understand power to be is about organisation and is mm -hmm. about resources and about how hospitals get run and how people get food. And like, you know, so it seems when you start talking about the role of imagination, but of course, like, you know, the imagination is required in imagining new societies, imagining new ways. One of the things that I've sort of discovered was it's not simply that people can't think of any ideas. It's when like ideas that are a potential threat or even a potential competitor to the to the dominant ideology are introduced. Those ideas are sort of ravaged and attacked as if like you know, say we do like you sort of go, oh, okay, well, all right, let's talk about then decentralisation of power that you would no longer like that British sovereignty that this nation wouldn't primarily be governed as this is Britain. You would have a, a series of fiefdoms, principalities and within them greater equality. I mean, the further a person is from actual power and influence, the less likely there is to be equality. That seems like a relatively basic formula. And now that we live in an age where communication is uh, much easier and because of the miracles of science and technology, we're able to organise at a sort of a rapid and immediate level. Why is it that we're not seeking different social models that are perhaps based on smaller units mm -hmm. of people yeah. having self-governance? So what, like, Is that the kind of idea... That could succeed. I mean, the other thing is, it sound, always sounds bloody dry and a bit boring. You know, that your big idea is it to devolve power? Mm -hmm. Well, if we follow the conventional understanding of politics, then it is dry and dull and boring and unimaginative. Oh. But I think, you know, we don't need to reinvent this stuff from nowhere. I think if we look right across the world through resistance groups through, you know, in, in Africa to in um, Cape Town to, you know, groups, indigenous uh, movements throughout the Latin, Latin America. There are people doing really clear, viable forms of resistance, which are not just simply negating or critiquing the world, are actually affirming their differences, standing up and saying, no, we want to be different. Now, this politics always happens at a very micro-political level. It's not some grand, you know, universal strategy for transforming in the world. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I think this is what there's also, you know, there's just an important conceptual 
difference here between what we mean by politics and what we mean by the political. Politics is basically the regulation of a certain narrative around ideas and freedom. The political is imagining new ways of living. That is what the political means. We need to recapture the idea that we can reimagine new styles and modes for living in the 21st century, which are completely adept to the times in which we're living in. Now, you know, and, and I think, how do we come to terms with that? Well, you know, it, it has to be based on the question of a more micro-political understanding. And also, as you say, the liberation of identities and differences in a way in which then becomes all about justice and new forms of liberation for people. Is this one of the ways that the system is self-sustaining because of actually it's difficult to envisage a kind of a, a, a type of commerce, a type of trade that isn't contaminated well, by the problems of globalisation? Well, I think, you know, this, um, the, the, the American theorist Frederick Jameson says, you know, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. Right? Hmm. So we have no sense God. of what beyond capitalism might, what, what, what might look like. Now, on the one hand, you know, your point about, you know, do we retreat back into some revolutionary intellectual political purity? Absolutely not. That's been part of the problem, I think, for the left. And it's, it's, it's remarkably fascistic, actually, that you can have this puritanical approach to the political. Now, we all understand on a day-to-day -day basis that through our consumer choices, through our behaviours, that we're all shamefully compromised with power. Mm. That we... And there is no way out of that unless you become a complete Luddite. And even then, you'd probably have to buy the right hammer to break the system, right? So the hammer itself <laughs> would be compromised in one way or another. So, so in that sense, you know, how do we kind of engage with this, this, this system? Well, first of all, it is to acknowledge that actually we are forced into shameful compromises all the time, mm. to recognise it. But I think as long as we retain a certain ethical dignity to the types of work that we want to do. But I'm determined as a person that owns an iPhone, that wears Converse trainers, that's got a house to say like, what what is the entry level for, uh, what is the price for entry to this conversation? Mm -hmm. Because if it's a total puritanism, then you're right. It, you know that quote is uh, that will come to pass. It's easier to envisage the end of the world than the end of capitalism. But is there a way where, like, because I think like people want to have stuff, mm -hmm. but like there's a, there's a, I read this thing that Gandhi said at the point of the the revolution in India or prior when when Indian independence became like sort of likely. He said we don't want just the government, the Indian government to be or the British government to be replaced by an Indian government to do exactly the same thing unless we devolve power unless. India and her 700,000 villages have some kind of meaningful power, then what is it that we've been working for? It says the people of India uh, are like have craft, we can make things with our hands. There's nothing sort of like wrong with that. He said trade should take place at the level like we're required. So I suppose what he's talking about is regulation, and he talks very explicitly about production by the masses, not mass production. Mm -hmm. People engaged in meaningful employment, people having some freedom within mm -hmm. their lives. So like I said, but like what I feel like is, yeah, I guess one of the ways that I feel sort of censored and silenced is by the, the challenges of doing uh, an advertisement in the middle of a podcast in which we're talking about different sort of political models. But you're saying, yeah, give yourself a pass because we are popularizing or conveying ideas that may be of some use to people. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's 
if anything, this this podcast is encouraging a broader discussion. I don't think, you know, we're not prescribing anything. It's kind of saying, well, okay, can we maybe think about the world in a slightly different way? If you can do that through advertising of underpants, then great. You know, they, why beat ourselves up about it? I think there's, there's there's something which we need to... And also, I think this this puritanicalism, you're right, you know, in, in terms of... You think about the technologies we produce today. I think you're right on the one hand. Our tendency today to speed up the mode of production such that perfectly good phones become redundant very quickly is troubling mm. because not only is this linked to technology but this is linked to humans as well right? mm. so the more capitalism speeds up the more things become redundant very quickly mm. now that is very clearly a problem however Outside of this, we don't want to get ourselves into a position where we say, well, okay, let's be completely anti-technological and completely puritanical around this. Because technology can be remarkably enabling. You look at the ways in which, again, you know, using the, the, the podcast as an example, the ability to reach audiences which were inconceivable 20 years ago just through a simple technological change is something which can be embraced. Technology is ambivalent. It can be enabling or it can also be disabling and what we need to just hold on to it is it is a technology but how can we harness it for true political transformation i say the same thing about tommy john underpants they can be used for good or they can be used for evil they could be used to cup you in a way that is sensible or they could be used to bunch up your genitalia in a manner that is frankly undignified yeah, this is like we're confronted with some difficult choices because one of the things I think of, like even like when I write a book called like Revolution, it comes out. It's a it's a commodity. Everything becomes a commodity, and I suppose this is this role of the imagination that you talked about before is like, well, how do we start to imagine a world where people don't sort of go like because we're not going to have that. We're not going to like the individualism is that like, people see themselves as individuals now, primarily not as members of collectives or communities. I think you know, sort of broadly speaking, I'm sure there's all sorts of people with religious identities that would disagree with that. But also, like, is there an appetite for people to give up their phones, to give up multiple clothes, to give up their skincare, to give up their haircuts? I, one of the questions I've, I've had to ask you this before, one of the things I ask myself sometimes is, would I feel happier if I let sort of if I went right? I'm going to have ten homeless people come and live in my house, and like, would, like for all the inconveniences that I would encounter, having every room cluttered up with strangers, and like you know, the losing the freedom to use my bathroom when I wanted, would that would my sum total of happiness increase? because I am daily boosted by the fact that I'm a kind person, that I've genuinely done my best, that I can say, wow, I'm doing everything that I can. That's why I, 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 you know, perhaps it, is it possible to envisage worlds where, like, where, where altruism and kindness become, become prioritised in tandem, inevitably, with sacrifice? Because on one level, I don't want to sacrifice. It's very hard to sacrifice, like, oh, God, does that mean I have to give up my house? Does that mean I have to give up my comfort? These are the kind of things I think about. But, again, I'm not a sort of, I'm not a neutral unit. Mm -hmm. I've been indoctrinated. I've been schooled. I've grown up an individualist. I'm a consumer. Mm -hmm. In a way, it's like, you know, challenging it in any way is... It's difficult. It's difficult to kick off the that, the, the casement of your identity or the mm -hmm. shell of your identity. Casement yeah. window. Well, I think you know all forms of profound political transformation, or even simple political transformation in ourselves towards a more empathetic model, has to begin with yourself. Right? And and you can compare this again to questions of spirituality. And and I think this also links to the parliamentary system as well. You know that you don't need to go to church to be spiritual. So why do we buy into this idea you need to vote in order to be political, right? Mm. That, you know, 
what, what would happen if everybody on a simple day just became a bit more empathetic, a bit more altruistic, a bit more just engaged with, you know, no individual person is going to resolve the problem of homelessness. Mm-hmm. But it's a very serious social problem. And one of the people, the things that comes out from, you know, that you listen to homeless people speak is they say, it makes so much even to their world if somebody just simply says hello to them in the morning, right? rather than actually being something which is hidden in plain sight from you. Yes. And what does it mean just to have just a bit more dignity to people who are on the, you know, the extreme ends of vulnerability, precarity? That is where, you know, that to me is the true measure of a society. It's not how we deal with the, the wealthiest tax owner, you know, whether we should tax the wealth of, the, um, of the, the elite. The true measure of society is how do we deal with our most vulnerable? Then we can start thinking about a different empathetic nature to politics. Oh, thanks, Brad. Okay, so right, this is like me offering up some kind of conclusion. I think that what we've learned is that, like, on the eve of yet another election, we have to look at how limited our choices actually are of what it is we're voting for. But if you do consider it important to intervene in some way, then you certainly should. If you think there's some way that you can make a difference with current democratic procedures, then you certainly should. But that should in no way stop us from looking for real alternatives. And where that journey begins, I think, is looking within yourself and looking at what you find difficult to take, what you find shameful, what you find embarrassing, what you want to, where you find injustice in your own life, what you find compromising. So I, the, the, the thing I've taken from this a lot is that the exclusion of spirituality, of empathy, of love from the political conversation has been to our huge detriment. And ultimately, if you don't include positive, positive emotion and positive spiritual experience in the political conversation, then negative emotion will govern and reign. It's very interesting, like, you know, it's summarized, I suppose, best by that quote, you know, the, the right look for converts, the left look for traitors, like that we do now need to look for a different kind of inclusive politics if like if there is going to be uh, an alternative to this resurgent right across Europe and across America then it looks like we're going to have to find new ways of speaking new ways of galvanizing people new ways of encouraging people to engage with the political process and there's no way of doing that if people don't think it has any impact or makes any difference at all to their lives so like I can see that the role of imagination and the role of inspiration becomes quite important there doesn't it Absolutely. And to me, it's just a simple question in terms of looking at the future. Do we want to live on a fortified island or do we want to live in a world of global togetherness? Global togetherness. Brad, thank you so much for coming on. Should we do more of these? Yes, we should. Yeah, let's just do more of them. Sometimes we could include other people. I want to get Frankie Boyle on, actually, mm-hmm. but we also have to consider Americans. Do you know any people that you think would be good for Americans? Yes, I've got a whole, yeah, whole list of people I will. Right. We should probably do that. We'll do this bit after the show when I start <laughs> pressing you for American academic guests. Ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to Under the Skin with Russell Brand and Dr. Brad Evans. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, if you want us to see us soaring up the iTunes chart, then uh, subscribe to this. Tell your friends to subscribe. Um, but more important than that, give it five stars. But even more important than that, go and see the Russell Brand uh, Rebirth Tour. Tickets available on russellbrand.com and look at some of Brad's books. But even more important than that, start to imagine new ways that you can uh, interface with society because we do believe that change is possible if you just get under the superficial, cutaneous layer of deceit. Or another way of saying that is... Get under the skin with Russell Brand. Bloody hell.